As a rogue, it's easy for me to spot the perfect mark. I get anything I want with a little distraction and patience. But as a role player, screw patience. I can't wait for my Dungeon Crate to arrive every month. Dungeon Crate brings me amazing RPG accessories like dice, minis, adventures, and lots more. And rumor has it around the guild, you also get a digital crate with even more secret extras. Dungeon Crate has what I want. Take what you deserve and become a member of Dungeon Crate today at DungeonCrate.com. I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy it. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix and Book Club podcast. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me, as always, is that revenant, Jeff Goad. Hello! And today, we have a very special guest, the writer of The Dark Trails himself, David Beatty, creator of Carnival of the Damned and The Dark Trails RPG. Hello, David. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me today. All right. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So, David, uh, for those of you, uh, our audience who are not familiar with you, how did you get into role-playing, and also how... When did you become aware of Appendix N as a concept? Uh, well, I was inducted into a cult when I was like 10 years old, and they did a lot of satanic things. Uh, for, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> there was a, uh, a neighborhood I moved into, I think probably 1977, and uh, met a friend in the neighborhood like we always end up doing. And he was, I think, two or three years older, and he had kind of dabbled a little bit into it, so... Uh, when summer came, you know, and you didn't have anything to do, that's pretty much all we did all summer. And from that point on, uh, I've always been playing a variation of D&D or uh, one of the other games that, you know, kind of sprouted from the, the tendrils of, of that game as the years mm-hmm. progressed. Now, you're known sort of more for the darker side of RPGs. Was that something am that I? you... How am I known for the more dark? <laughs> Were, is that something you cottoned <laughs> on to right away? Or is that something that sort of came later, you know, in your uh, development? I've always really liked the the horror rpgs back when i was a youngster i don't know if you guys were taking breaths yet or not mm-hmm. um there was chill there was uh GURPS horror um so i was always drawn to those games and i think that most of the i guess most of the adventures i ran as a kid i was always trying to creep people out and i think that just stems from the, the horror movies and things you know as we all tend to kind of delve into as kids sure um, sure Plenty, and, of, and, plenty of material from those movies to throw at people. Right. Were you looking at books as well, or, or was it really more cinema that was sort of your your sort of influence as far um, as your approach? That's a good question. Uh, I would say that I really started reading uh, probably eighth, ninth grade, and well, I just didn't start reading. I was reading a little bit before that time, but uh, started getting into horror. Uh, not so much the classics. I was more into uh, have you guys ever heard of Brian Loomley? Sure, sure. Uh, yeah. Read a lot of the Necroscope books and then dabbled into some of his other things. Clive Barker, I was really big on him. For some reason, uh, uh, Stephen King, I don't know why, just never really appealed to me. So those were my mainstays early on. 
Mm-hmm. And that was sort of the golden age of paperback horror was sort of like the early 80s, right around there, early 80s through the early yeah. 90s. Yeah. Before, I guess it's towards the publishing company, and I'm sure they're still around. But. Right, right. And, and were you aware of uh, of H.P. Lovecraft at that point or the Appendix N at that point yet? Or I was aware of Lovecraft, um, not of the Appendix. I did uh, read a, a couple of the short stories, but in all honesty, it, it made my brain hurt. Um, uh, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're wonderfully written, but, you know, I, I was young and, uh, I don't know. I, it just, I guess that the books that I've already mentioned, they were a little bit more of an easier read for me, if that makes sense. And a little mm-hmm. more, I don't know, maybe modern horror-ish, if, if that could be a phrase. And sure. so I was a little bit more drawn to those. I didn't really get into, um, Appendix N or, or Lovecraft actually until I started playing DCC, which was probably about. Uh, seven years ago, maybe. Ah, okay. And you were one of the original uh, co-hosts of Sanctum Secorum, <laughs> which is another podcast about the Appendix N. Uh, so had you been doing much Appendix N reading before joining the Sanctum Secorum ranks, or is that really when you kind of started diving in deep? Um, it was. I did read a few um, off the list. Mo- mainly, I was uh, in the Moorcock. Um but I just started kind of getting into that, and that was when uh, Bob and Jen kind of took me under their wings and let me provide their show with cackles and a little bit of nonsense. There you go. <laughs> what are, so you've mentioned some of your favorites in the Appendix N. Was there anything in the Appendix N that you read as a part of Sanctum Secorum or just kind of in your in your, in your, in your um, desire to explore the Appendix N that you read and you're just like, why is this here? um no i think that uh everything we read i think was was a good fit Uh, maybe not perfect but everything that we read i think could have been made easily into a dcc type adventure um there there were definitely some books where i i think my attention probably drifted off a little ways and then there were those that I, i definitely found that i was a little more fond of but that was a long time ago, Goat. That was probably, what, three years ago? I've got the memory span of like a gnat. So I'm trying <laughs> to remember what I did 48 hours ago, and you're asking me, well, these books that you read uh, three years ago. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, it was it was a good experience for me. And, of course, you know Bob and Jen. They're awesome. So it was mm-hmm. a fun show. It really was. But that was right about the time that um, I had – I kind of dabbled with the weird West and, and we were starting to play that at home here and I ran it uh, early 2016 and people seemed to really like it at the con. So I was just trying to juggle too many things and I've kind of bowed out of the show just so I could have more time to put into dark trails. That's completely unacceptable. <laughs> you need to have five things on your plate not, you not four no bob less than three. five and what is bob doing i mean when is bob not doing is the question my brain would be fried so well i have a theory that bob we will learn how bob does it by by reading this week's book the case of charles dexter ward <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point <laughs> now, speaking of reading Charles Dexter Ward, let's go ahead and discuss which editions of the books that we're reading. Uh, the edition of the book that I'm reading today is the Beagle Paperback, and this is from 1971. 
And actually, I had the artist pulled up, but now I, I don't have it pulled up anymore. So I guess we should come back to me in a second. Uh, so, Hoy, what are you reading? Uh, I have uh, several versions, but this week I decided to pick up the Lovecraft Illustrated series. So it's a hardcover there with a bunch of illustrations by Pete Von Schale, who just done, I guess, uh, horror wow. movie posters and horror comics. That's awesome. Uh, so nice and nice full color yellows in there. And some uh, extra, a um, couple extra essays that uh, stuff that may have influenced um, the uh, the uh, formation of this story. And I think they've done. We got twelve other books in this series of the Lovecraft. I don't know if they've gotten to every single Lovecraft story yet, but that's what I'm reading this week. That's pretty cool. I'm gonna have to get the link for that from you, Hoy. There you go. Very cool. Yeah, and mine. The paperback has a cover by Victor Valla. Um, and on the cover here, this Victor Valla cover, it's like the outline of probably the Joseph Kerwin painting. And in the background, you can kind of see there's like some halls or something. I don't know. But um, on the back, it says the madman. They shut him in a madhouse when his visions of horror, his queerly detailed memories of the events of centuries ago became too much for the world to stand. But were Charles Dexter Ward's visions and memories madness or a truth too terrible for telling? The case of Charles Dexter Ward is H.P. Lovecraft's most famous novel of supernatural horror, a chilling masterpiece to haunt the reader forever. Ooh. <laughs> that's pretty deep. Yeah. And which maybe version are you read reading? Them, maybe that's why I didn't read them as a kid. I read that. And I was like, <laughs> Jesus, I don't want to be haunted for the rest of my life. Um, <laughs> I kind of took the cheap right way out. I bought the 99-cent e-version by Google Market and uh, read it on my phone. <laughs> hey, as good as a way as any. Uh, you know, I think um, Lovecraft will find a way to get you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So with that, we'll go take a look at our Hygaxian word of the day. And our word of today is... Mephitic. Mephitic. And mephitic is found twice in the text, once on page 66 of my version, where it says, In the midst of this mephitic flood, there came a very perceptible flash like that of lightning, which would have been blinding and impressive but for the daylight around. And then he heard the voice that no listener can ever forget because of its thunderous remoteness, its incredible depth, and its eldritch dissimilarity to Charles Ward's voice. And it's also mentioned on page 96. And on page 96, it says, Mr. Ward responded feebly, but it could, but it could be seen that the mephetic blast from the crypt had in some way gravely sickened him. And mephetic means foul-smelling or noxious, especially of a gas or vapor. So, so that is our word for today. So basically Canal Street, Ch Chinatown in August. Exactly. <laughs> the mephetic stench of the canal, of, of the, uh, the Chinatown side streets in Canal Street. There you go. <laughs> All right. So with that, we can head on into the library. Mr. David Beatty, what did you think of the case of Charles Dexter Ward? Um, I think it's great, uh, to be honest with you. I still have a lot of Lovecraft to read, um, but I think it ranks right up there with my favorite story, uh, The Mound. Um, mm. I think that it was, uh, I didn't really, yeah, I guess sometimes you figure what's going on, but it really kind of had me. I didn't know, um, you know, I, th I guess you'd call it a slight plot twist when you figure out uh, what's happened, but 
uh, reading it just really, I think it's beautifully written. And I also think that it really sparked a lot of imagination as far as things that I could do with, uh, you know, adventures, uh, kind of relating to the story. I think it really can provide a lot of brain fuel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How about you, Hoy? What did you think of the case of Charles Dexter Ward? I really liked it this time. I think the last time I'd read it was, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. And I liked it equally well then. But this time, I guess with the, a lot of the books through this project, uh, you know, we see things that we didn't see the last time. So this time I saw, um, you know, previously, of course, the obvious thing is to think of it as, a, you know, the source for Call of Cthulhu. But there's stuff that's obviously dungeon crawling. In here, I mean, we'll talk about more in the gaming part of it, but there's there's dungeon crawling, there's evil wizards, there's you know, um, it's all there, right? It's um, it is an it is a mystery, it is a horror story. There's a certain element of adventure in here. Um, it moves along sometimes with Lovecraft. He gets too strung up in his adjectives, <laughs> um, and he does have those moments when he's describing like you know how Providence looks at sunset. Um, and stuff like that, but it's part of that is to to sort of recall this sort of um, innocence or this golden era that that Charles Dexter Ward is looking for that never really existed, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I think that he's quite effective with that. And then I like the sort of framing of of uh, the time frames, like you know, this is talking about something that has already passed, but then it goes back. There's various frame time frames, like the late seventeen uh, late eighteen hundred uh, 1700s, right? There's the you know, the early teens, there's the current day in the book, which in this case is 1928, I believe. Um, so, and, and you sort of learn about Charles Dexter Ward, um, who is nominally our protagonist, although we never actually see things through his eyes, um, as well as, you know, all the other figures in the story. So I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Great. Um, I I also really enjoyed it. I would say that my experience of reading it is I found I found it very dry, hmm. um, and and it was a it was a bit of a challenge to read at times. But um, Hoy, as you know, as I go through the book, I, I highlight as I go, and I highlight both kind of major plot points so that as I'm reviewing it, I'm I can kind of see what those beats are, and I also highlight kind of the interesting stuff that I'd like to talk about when we get on the show. And prior to each recording, I go through and I reread the highlighted portions that I did. And what was interesting is when I was just reading the highlighted sections, I found that this story was really thrilling. And I had so much fun going through the highlighted portions of it, which is a very different experience of actually just reading the entire text. So I do feel like this could be edited down to a much shorter piece and be far more thrilling and effective. Hmm. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, if you're talking about in terms of plot and the action that happens in there, but I think part of this is it's sort of a tragedy, what happens to Charles Dexter Ward, so you kind of have to set up that it's, um, it's this guy, you know, he's a rich kid who means well, he doesn't really have a, you know, a, a vicious bone in his body, but then people think he's gone insane and, and all these bad things are happening around him. And then later on, we, we learn what's really going on. So I think there's sort of a, a need to set up this sort of what passes for innocence in a Lovecraft story. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, but I think, I think your point is well taken in terms of if you're looking to get into the horror, get into the sort of the uh, quintessential gist of the story, then all the stuff, as we just talked about, sort of the descriptive passages of like the sort of colonial houses, the, Mm -hmm. the, the, the actual geography of Providence, 
Um, it's very meaningful to Lovecraft, but per- perhaps not as meaningful for us. We can't put it into our mind's eye as easily. No, no, I kind of, I kind of dug it. I mean, I, I agree with you to a degree, uh, Jeff, in that it, it is kind of dry, and some of the, the descriptors get a little long. But I mean, it, it really kind of—I've uh, never been to the area. I don't know if you guys have or not, but um, it, it, I have. It, I don't know how. I guess are any of those streets there? You know, or is it? Um, pretty much, I think all of the streets there. I think he he renumbered a few of the houses so that people wouldn't just go yeah. in, you know, read the story and just go barging into people's houses. <laughs> yeah, no, I thought it was yeah. cool. Burn that down, it, burn it, down that bar. It, right. it made me want to go. You know, it made me want to just kind of visit, just to kind of. Mm-hmm. Oh awesome. yeah, and Providence has walking H.P. Lovecraft walking tours, and they'll show you locations that both inspired Lovecraft stories or are specifically mentioned in Lovecraft stories. Right, right. Is As that, a matter of fact, I think at the very in three weeks. At or basically two weeks before this podcast will drop, Necronomicon, the annual Lovecraft convention uh, in Providence, yeah. will have just happened. I'm considering Is it annual? I think it's every other year. Oh, it might be biannual. You're right. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, I want, walking I want to try tours. And make that if I can. Uh, and I'm sure that Tim DeShane has his own tour, right? He, he does. Exactly. <laughs> also, the bummer with Necronomicon is I always go to Gen Con, and it's, if it's not always the same weekend, it's always – within a week of it or something. It's, it's, it's too close to Gen Con for me to ever make it there. Right, right. So one thing that I thought was really interesting about this story is, you know, I, I really like a slow burn horror film. You know, I like Rosemary's Baby and The Shining and these films that like set a mood and really slowly build up. And then you have kind of this big crazy ending. And that's certainly something that happens here in the case of Charles Dexter Ward. And one of the things I found particularly satisfying about it is I'm somebody like I saw the movie Hereditary. I loved it. Oh, I know yeah. not a lot of a lot of it was a very uh, divisive film for a lot of people. I loved it. But in Hereditary, you had this theme of um, inherited fate that you have kind of no control over. And without really giving away spoilers for a movie that people might not have seen, I feel like that same kind of theme of this, like, because Charles Dexter Ward is kind of inherited this fate of having to like seek out Joseph Kerwin without even fully understanding why, and seems to kind of be playing out this other person's fantasy without even fully comprehending the, the, the why behind it all. And I thought that was really interesting. What did you guys think of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, th- I thought also, I think, uh, I mean, it's, I knew what I was getting to this time, but you know, in the past I thought this was a possession story, or at least that's where you think you're going with this. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if you were reading this in the seventies and eighties, because you know, the exorcist and all that stuff had just come out and it turns out it's totally not that right. And then at some point you think it's a vampire story and it's not that either. Um, so it's funny that those, those things are there and, and the, that slow build is necessary to sort of, it's a slight misdirection. It doesn't really change the ultimate nature of the story, but it is a slight misdirection. You think it's going to be, somewhat more conventional horrors, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's possession or vampires, and it turns out not to be those things. Um, so I think that's that's a pretty pretty interesting element of the story. That was a great comparison uh, to Hereditary, because that movie creeped me out. Yes. Um, that was one of those I watched with the girlfriend, and then she left to go home, and I was like, I kind of wish she hadn't gone home. <laughs> you know, I mean, it really, really got under my skin. So I know a lot of people hate that movie, but you, you nail it on the head where it's just yeah. that, that fate that you can't escape. And, and, and it was a slow burn of the movie, but Jesus, the last 30 minutes of that movie just, yeah, it got me. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. You know, and I, I feel like there's this this letter from Joseph Kerwin that's on page 48 of my edition that really kind of reveals a lot of what's going on in the story. And in this letter at one point, he says, And of ye seed of old shall one be born who shall look back, though knowing not what he seeks. So clearly the one who will be born who will look back knowing not what he seeks is going to be Charles Dexter yeah. Ward. And he says... One shall be in years to come that shall look back and use what salts or stuff for salt you shall leave him. And then there's a, a Bible quote, which is Job 14, 14. And it says, if a man shall die, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. Yeah, I think that's that building of fate and what Lovecraft is really good at is sort of labor layering stuff to give it more plausibility. So just as you say, there's a site, there's an actual Bible verse in there. These letters, he keeps on referring to books, other historical events that were contemporary. Kerwin supposedly fled Salem, you know, to get away ahead of the rich trials to get down to Providence, which was much more known as being a much more liberal city at the time. Right. And so he's sort of kind of able to live out in the open and do his things until people finally get too suspicious of it. Um, yeah, in fact, I love how he describes Providence on, yeah. on page 15. He says, Providence, that universal haven of the odd, the free, and the dissenting. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but a- absolutely, there's there's a lot going on in this story. And I really like that H.P. Lovecraft doesn't over-explain anything mm-hmm. and leaves a lot to the imagination still. Like, for example, when we're talking about the history of Joseph Kerwin, they also mentioned that Joseph Kerwin, when he was 15, left home and spent nine years abroad. And after spending nine years abroad, he comes back to America. And now suddenly he seems older and acts as, and acts as though he is somebody who was born and raised in England. Um, and so that also begs the question, maybe Joseph Kerwin isn't even the original wizard. Maybe Joseph Kerwin underwent the same transformation or the same process that um, Charles Dexter Ward did. And this is just continuing generation after generation. Mm-hmm. It, m- it might be a much more ancient entity than we're led to believe in the right, story. Right. Um, yes, there's definitely a lot of sort of open endedness, um, which we'll get to, especially later on with some of the uh, – for lack of a better word, revenants that are raised or the ones that are intended to be raised by Joseph Kerwin and his sort of three peer wizards. It's two peer wizards who are also from Salem. Uh, was it Orne, Simon Orne and Edward Hutchinson mm-hmm. who, are, who communicate with him in letters. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I think um, there's a lot of strings that he leaves to be pulled. And I think that's, um, I think as you were mentioning, David, it's, it's very rich because it allows, if we're looking at this from the framework of um, a mystery story or a role-playing game, then you have all these sort of branches on which the protagonists can go down, some of which will be dead ends or red herrings, right? But this here, this here is, is definitely almost like the good frame for, because it's not quite cosmic, right? This story, out of all of Lovecraft stories, it is very much grounded, although there's allusions to the cosmic, it is very much grounded in what is happening to one person from a very good family in, in one sort of smallish, you know, region, right? It's basically this rich part of Providence on the hill and then a few miles away sort of sort of on the outskirts of town, right? I mean, there's stuff that happens sort of off screen elsewhere, but this is where the, the concentrated action is happening, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think, yeah, but there's, but it's got scope both in terms of time and then potentially what else is happening sort of off screen around the edges. 
Absolutely. And I think another thing that's important to discuss whenever you talk about H.P. Lovecraft is also H.P. Lovecraft's treatment of race. Um, what did you guys think about that while reading the case of Charles Dexter Ward? Was that something that um, was noticeable for you or not so much? I did notice it. Um, it, it. It didn't seem like it was, I don't know, it, it didn't seem, I don't know the, 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 what I'm trying to say, but I noticed it in that, you know, he used the word Negro and he used uh, the, the uh, referring to servants uh, when he was talking about Charles going through the uh, the house and found the portrait. But um, I didn't see anything that really just blared out as an eyesore for me. Um, How about you, Hoy? I mean, there's a few things. I mean, the, the actual servants where uh, who were in the house where um, Charles Dexter Ward found the painting of Joseph Kerwin, they were not uh, drawn in, in a particularly offensive way. I think they were, you know, they're they're domestic servants, but they're not, you know, mammying or pappying. They're just they're just, you know, and they're actually described as being well regarded in the community. Um, there is talk about the slave trade, which was a reality of Providence, right? These these sort of merchants, people forget that New England was just as much participating in the sort of the triangle trade as the Deep South. Um, there is the offensive name for the cat, but it's not, it's a black cat, right? It's not the, it's not, it's not like hit on constantly. Uh, so in this case, we know that uh, Lovecraft has a reputation for being racist even in his time. Uh, but in this particular story, I didn't feel that that was the case. I felt it was of the time yeah. and not did not exceed the uh, sort of depictions of the time, if that's a, something I can say. Yeah, there was one there was one part where I feel like um, it was pretty blaring and gross. Um, and that's where he's describing uh, one of the servants. And he says, the wife was of a very repulsive cast of countenance, probably due to her mixture of Negro blood. Right, right. This is the one who. These are the uh, the Native Americans who worked for Kerwin back in the 1600s, right? Yeah. Correct, right, correct. Right, right, right. So her repulsive countenance was probably due to the mixture of Negro blood. Mm -hmm. That that's that's pretty. That's a pretty gross description. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, no doubt. And in the grand scheme of things, it's not like the horror of Red Hook, which is just you know end to end, right? Or even sure. Uh, um, the rats in the walls or something like that. Um, but yes, I could see definitely if you're reading this, like, ah, you know, you're coming along. It's like, ah, I'm going to just put this back on the shelf now. If this is the, if this is the way it's going to be going forward. Right. So. Absolutely. If, if you're somebody who would be really bothered by a statement like that, then I, I think it's important to mention that things like that are present in the story. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, but that's saying it, it didn't interfere with my ability to really kind of enjoy the story either. Right. Because even though when they talk about the slaves, the slaves, it's very clear, are victims that, that, you know, that Kerwin buys from the West Indies for his experiments and stuff like that, um, that they are just as much victims as anybody else. Um, and, and it's not like they're just, you know, no better than cattle, right, in this case. Um, so that's pretty clear that there's inhumanity in the story uh, that is both by humans and things that are literally inhuman. And then there's, you know, there is, you know, uh, ideas of, of racial superiority, but that's the, the, the main issue here is what's inhuman and what's human. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's also interesting is that there's like a complete lack of a, um, of female characters. Like, you know, Joseph Kerwin has a, a wife and a daughter. Um, and we often refer to Charles Dexter Ward's mother as somebody who like, shouldn't be told about what's going on. Uh, the women have a real kind of lack of agency and um, 
and presence in this story. Um, I don't know. Was that something you picked up on, David, or no? Uh, no. I mean, I, I think that the, the main thing when he was uh, writing about uh, Charles's mother, I mean, it seemed like she was, I don't know, it seems like she was getting a healthy dose of what was going on behind the door, and it, it creeped her out so bad she fainted. But I, I, I missed on that. I didn't really, you know, I, I think I was more into the story than trying to think about elements of racism and all those other things that go along with it. I do think that Charles' mother actually is one of the people who intuited what was wrong with Charles before any of the other yeah. characters, right? Because the other characters could, oh, ra- absolutely. could rationalize that Charles is, oh, he's just deep in his studies or whatever. And she's really realizing, oh, this is not really my son, you know, yes. whatever that means. Um, so I think in, um, I mean, this is a general, um, I won't say weakness. I mean, it's just whatever you're interested in uh, as a writer, but Lovecraft is not genuinely, genuine, generally particularly interested in, uh, you know, the role of women in his stories, right? There's a, every once in a while, there's an interesting villain or something like that, but generally that's not what he's um, in his sphere. And, and, you know, we can psychoanalyze him and we know that he had very interesting personal relationships, yeah. <laughs> but um, does it, would it have added or taken away from the story by, by adding more presence of, of, um, you know, women in Charles's life or around Charles's life that I don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. so, yeah. Um, but again, I do think the mother is, is in, on the one hand, she's a little bit stereotypical uh, as sort of an upper class, sort of very um, sort of sheltered woman. But she is, again, the person who does really realize what is that something is deeply wrong um, well before any of the other characters are, are willing to admit it. So That's true. So, David, what else did you find uh, worked or didn't work about this story? Uh, I think it was... Uh... I think it was layered and I like that. I think that it was kind of uh, fed to us piece by piece, but it was in such a way that I didn't figure out what was going on, you know, and, and I haven't read it before. Like, Hoy, I think you said you had read it at least once, right? Right. About 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. So even though I, I picked up on stuff this time, which I didn't see last time. Yeah. So. Um, and that's probably pretty cool too, that you did, yeah. you know, pick up on things like that. So um, to me, it was just, I mean, I really enjoyed it. You know, it's, it, I think that uh, I kind of was like, well, are these guys are they the vampires? Are they necromancers? You know, what? what's going to be the end result here? And I think it, it kind of it kept my attention. I didn't get bored with it at all. You know, there were a couple of points where I think it gets a little drawn out with his descriptors. But, you know, for the most part, I thought it was a really good, well-put-together story that, I mean, the ending was great. And I love the idea of a little brotherhood of necromancers, you know, kind of <laughs> keeping in touch and, and bringing each other back and, uh, I think it was. I mean, it would make a great adventure. And, and I liked that it was structured so that there was actually a full adventure that's even sort of in the first third of the story, sort of like the prologue yeah. to what's happening yeah. in the present day, when the people of Providence in the 1700s realize there's something wrong with Charles Dexter Ward, and they realize that they either have to confront him, and he's either crazy or he's evil, and either way he has to be taken off the board, right? And and that becomes this whole adventure section. Um, so I thought that was, um, you know, really interesting. And, and, and in many stories, that would have been the climax. But then it brings us yeah. back to this tragedy of the present day, right? And even then, there's a couple of climaxes because there's um, Dr. Uh, uh, Ward and his uh, – Dr. Willett – or his father and Dr. Willett, they go down to the catacombs below the, the, the bungalow, which is over where uh, Joseph Kerwin's original mansion was. And so that could have been one – 
Um, that could have been the sort of climax of the story. But then Willard comes back out of there, and then there's another climax in the uh, asylum where the uh, supposed Charles Dexter Ward is being kept. So there's there's um, you know multiple stages of the story yeah. or or layers of the onion. I guess yeah, a lot say. of layers. That, that is great. Yeah. I mean, I don't yeah. know. I think it was really well written. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, taking this over to the gaming side of the conversation, I absolutely think it would be really fun. I could imagine uh, doing a like a two day, two part uh, con game where the first day you are part of the team that's taking down Joseph Kerwin in the past. Yeah. And then in the second day, you are like Dr. Willett working with uh, uh, Charles Dexter Ward, who is now in the sanitarium, and you're trying to figure out what's happened to this like strange young man's mind. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I was thinking about that just before you said that, Jeff. And you, yeah. could even, you could do that to where the second day or the second adventure, maybe uh, your characters would have some kind of trade or something that they've, they've been handed down the line from the original folks, mm-hmm. you know, from the, uh, it's a great idea. Right. Certain starting points or, or, or plot points for the second half would be triggered by what happens in the first half. Um, and actually, this brings me up, I think, with something we had mentioned before, Jeff, about the possibility of doing two different systems to best simulate the different halves of the story, right? I could definitely mm-hmm. see the first half of the story being a classic Dungeons & Dragons or Lamentations of the Flame Princess adventure, yeah. as opposed to, say, a Call of Cthulhu adventure, right? Because literally when the the people of Providence go to raid Kerwin's... Um, catacombs they bring a hundred well-armed sailors that's literally D with your hirelings or men at arms right and they split you know, and they have three sections of the party and they go down to the catacombs um you know and they're all you know fighters i guess but you know there's monsters down there in the catacombs kerwin's clearly an evil wizard right and then the second half is much more investigative it's just dr willett that could be call of cthulhu that could be gumshoe that could be your modern system of choice which doesn't privilege, which privileges social skills more than sort of men of action. Yeah, and I think there was a Lamentations adventure, not specifically based on Charles Dexter Ward, but that one uh, where they go to the island. It's, it's again, it's also split where what you do in the past is sort of the prologue and influences how the setup of the game goes going forward. Is and again, I think this would be a perfect two day convention game, yeah. or something like that. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So Lovecraft is considered um, to be one of the, the largest influences on Dungeons and & Dragons. And a big reason for that is Gary Gygax specifically says Lovecraft is one of the biggest influences on D&D. So I guess my first question is, uh, what class and level is Charles Dexter Ward? <laughs> <laughs> which which, which okay. version of Charles? <laughs> exactly. So... I you know obviously Charles Dexter the the case of Charles Dexter Ward is not necessarily something that you would would, would be a traditional Dungeons and Dragons adventure as written but there is a lot of Dungeons and Dragonsy stuff in there that Hoy was already kind of alluding to mm-hmm. so Hoy let's let's go ahead and explore some of that further sure um I mean to be I think he had, would have leveled up to like a second or third level magic user by by the time he revives Kerwin right because he obviously has learned to read magic at some point so they can you know and figure out all these scripts and stuff like that. And he probably reads scrolls is how he doesn't actually know the spell, but he kind of reads scrolls and that's how he revives, you know, Joseph Kerwin. Right. So I think he's somewhere in their second, third level, you know, he doesn't probably have a very high constitution. So he probably only has like seven or eight hit points max anyway. So that, that's, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, now, David, while you're reading this, was anything you were reading feeling very kind of dungeons and dragons to you or no? Well, I think, you know, being that I'm, I'm so involved with Dark Trails that I just immediately went Weird West with it. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I think that it plays very well into that. You, you mentioned that the first part of the book could be played out with lamentations, but, you know, in the second part with um, something more typical called Cthulhu, but I actually think it would work just as well with Dark Trails. Sure, um, sure. I mean, based on the short experiences I've had with Dark Trails, I think it would work very yeah, well. Yeah, I think that, um, I don't know, I, I really think it's a great idea what, what you're talking about, but I think just about any kind of system, you probably could start out on a fantasy kind of, you know, storyline, and then you could just about pick your poison. You could even go MCC or, you know, like a post-apocalypse if you wanted to, you know. These these necromancers have been, like, doing this for centuries, and, do, you know, I mean, I think it would be pretty cool. Sure, sure. And, and once they revive, uh, you know, specimen number 118, you know, we're talking about, <laughs> you know, 18th, 20th, 30th level wizard. Who knows? I mean, it's it's we're never quite clear who specimen 118 is, but it's sort of implied that it's Merlin, right? And then um, there's a couple times when they're trying to, uh, It's I, I like when they first, uh, when Charles Dexter Ward is still alive, when they sort of, um, the, the police stop that shipment, which turns out to be full of basically the remains of like, looted famous figures from all around the world they don't tell say who exactly they are but they said it would have caused like major international scandal if these people were discovered to be missing from their graves and then and then there's the letters going from the three lecomans it's like oh can you get me benjamin franklin bf and then you know <laughs> when you're done with him you know send him on over to me and i'll use him for you know, <laughs> so, um so again you know I, I there's action there's mystery you know i think any way you want to lean on it and yeah. and um and I think uh, certainly, yeah, the, with the the way that you know dark trails or sort of the more traditional class and level things, you can certainly emphasize the roles of different characters. So certainly, again, um, Doctor Willett, uh, Charles Dexter Ward themselves are clearly sort of more wizards. I mean, Doctor Willett, maybe even you know horror of horrors jeff a cleric you know <laughs> um no <laughs> no <laughs> you know what i'm saying right the role of a healer he, he basically yes, 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 you, know, so, um, you know and and you know i forget all the various dcc classes but i mean um dark trails classes but i remember certainly that there was you know variations on the gunfighter the scout yeah. the you know sort of the do- the doctor the frontier well, you've got doctor, your occultist and you've got the yeah. montebank which is kind of an alchemist uh, so either, either I, one of those would Blend themselves well, but didn't uh, I don't know. Have you have you ever uh, played or run through the Arwitch Grinder, Jeff? Or what? yes, yes, yes. Art? This is very Arwitch Grinder. Art, right, aren't right. the Kerwins mentioned in this? They're they're mentioned, and the the pits where the things are yeah, when they find yeah. it in the dark. Yeah, that's very much straight straight. Uh, well, yeah. I was reading, and I was trying to you know, Daniel Bishop wrote that, and I guess I was trying to see what he had taken from. The story that he might have injected and it seems to me like i couldn't really i didn't really see a lot of the story in that but i did the name i was like kerwin's i was like i wonder if that's what daniel yeah. bishop was doing. well they, right. they did have all those yeah it's it's the underground catacombs beneath the cabin right. and you're right and that's what's really funny is i remember when i first started reading the case of charles dexter ward and the name joseph kerwin came up i was like where <laughs> have i heard this name before <laughs> so i googled joseph kerwin thinking that he must have been in another lovecraft story or mentioned somewhere and i and as far as i could tell this was the only lovecraft story he was in and i was like I guess maybe he's just a famous figure, and that's why. Right. No, you're right. It's the Arwitch Grinder is the reason why the right. name Kerwin is familiar. Right, yes, right. duh. Oh. And, and then uh, the large men are sort of like there's at one point one of the uh, the revenants of the um, 
the blacksmith, right, who had been dead for 50 years, was the exceptionally large man who was found, like, in the river or the water. And they said, oh, it looks just like the blacksmith from 50 years ago, right? So those are the large men from the Arwitch Grinder. So it's, I think it's um, Arwitch Grinder. I mean, it's not a one-for-one. One. Daniel Bishop's a little more subtle than that. So I think It's not, but that. it's a really great example of how you can take something like the right. case of Charles Dexter Ward and use that to inspire a game. So, And for those who are listening who don't know, the Arwitch Grinder is a zero-level funnel for Dungeon Crawl Classics written by Daniel J. Bishop. Right. And it's loads of fun. It's um, it's available as one of the issues of Crawl Magazine. Right. I think it's number, I nine, which issue. number nine or number I eight. Think it's right, eight. Right in that I range. Think it's eight. 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 Yeah. Um, so easily available as a PDF. And a great, be great. If, you're, if you're getting into DCC and you're looking for a funnel, um, that is, that's my favorite. You know, and it, it's. Right. That that gets the sort of the the sort of um, what are what is DCC you know, right, right in out of the bat. I mean, it's probably right up there with, uh, you know, sailors on the starless sea or, or, yeah. you know, frozen in time as, as examples of what DCC can and be. I have, I've run that with dark trails as a funnel before. It, it, oh, sure. That would definitely work. Easily slides yeah. Into that oh yeah. 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 That is a great fit there. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it could be ported right back to call of Cthulhu, you know, with relative ease or any sort of more sort of straight, straight, more straight, modern, um, non-pulpy uh, RPG. I agree completely. I mean, I think oftentimes people are too wor- too concerned about finding adventure modules specifically for the, the rule system they're running. And I'm just like, grab an adventure module from any system and run it in any system you want. Like if a good adventure is a good adventure and you can make up the stats as you go, as long as you know the system well enough, you can make up the stats as you go. Sure, sure. And again, I think that there is... Um, you know, again, a couple of different frames in here in this book, and, and that whole that whole first half is has investigative, but is dungeon crawl right there, right? And then there's that second dungeon crawl when Doctor Willett goes down there, and I like the things that we are sort of hand wave away now in a lot of games of DCC. I'm not DCC of modern D and D, with like um, you know his tor- his his uh, the torches and the lanterns going out. He drops his flashlight. So he gets in the dark and he's afraid if he doesn't crawl back to the storeroom before that lantern goes out, he'll, you know, die there in the darkness. And he's worried about falling in the hole where the monster is, right? It's very old school exploration, that fear of the dark, which is kind of hard to convey a lot of times now in current day, modern fantasy RPGs. Mm -hmm. We also have a really great example of sanity loss, which I know is, a an important part of game mechanics for Lovecraftian horror. We have it in Call of Cthulhu. We have it in Dark Trails RPG. And on page 102, um, when Dr. Willett sees some things that no man was meant to see, um, it says that during the next few in- instances, I'm sorry, during the next few instances, he was undoubtedly as stark mad as any inmate of Dr. Waite's private hospital. And then it says he screamed and screamed and screamed in a voice whose falsetto panic had no acquaintance of his world um, would ever have recognized. <laughs> and he crawled away, crawled and rolled desperately away. Uh, so, yeah, he, he just completely loses his shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then it takes him like three days at home with his like private maid or something to even recover from what he saw. Right, right. That's definitely, you know, the full on five, seven point sanity loss, whatever it happens <laughs> to be, the temporary temporary insanity in Call of Cthulhu. Um, and, yeah, and and, and uh, David, can you tell us a little bit about how sanity loss works in uh, Dark yeah. Trails? And also I'm curious, 
while you were reading it, did it did you feel like this kind of matched up well with with that? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I think that with DCC, it's a little more. Even though Dark Trails is kind of a horror-based, Lovecraftian, Weird West, I think that I didn't want it to be a mechanic that would totally, um, at least without a lot of... Um, basically, when you're playing a character, I didn't want them to be- have to become NPCs like after one or two encounters. I didn't want it to be such a quick spiral down into madness. So I invented a, a new ability score, which is derived from um, two abilities that each every DCC character has, stamina and personality. And I figured with personality, which basically represents your wisdom and your willpower, and then stamina, which is your you know physical fortitude. I was thinking you've got two types of stress, or stress affects you in two different ways. It can affect you physically, and it can affect you emotionally and uh, mentally. So I combined those two and divided them. And that forms what's called a grit score. And grit represents your basic ability to withstand stress going through the adventure, stress of, related to horror. So let's just say mm-hmm. if you guys were playing this adventure and it took three sessions, um, a grit check would be called for at any point when I really felt like, you know, like if we were seriously, if we were in this situation, we would probably be scared shitless. Um, that mm-hmm. would be a grit check. So you you basically make the grit check, which is always a standard of a difficulty class 10, but it's modified by, say, like the creature. So if the creature had um, three hit dice, it'd be like a plus three to the DC, so a DC 13. Uh, It's a will-based save, and if you fail it, then you would lose grit points. Uh, Grit points go up and down. Uh, You lose grit points equal to the hit dice of the creature. So again, if it was a three hit dice creature, you'd lose three points from your grit score. Now, the thing with grit is um, that is your a representation of your stress levels during this current adventure. So when you say the doctor took three days to recuperate from the things that he saw, let's just say you guys finished the adventure um, after three sessions, and uh, Jeff, your character's grit score was actually zero, which means he cracks. And when you crack, you develop a, uh, a phobia or a derangement that you keep permanently, but at the end of the adventure, everything resets, but your grit score is permanently reduced by one. Boy, let's just say Mm -hmm. yours was a total of 12, and you went all the way down to 10. Well, at the end of the adventure, you have some downtime, so your grit score goes all the way back up until you start the next adventure. I hope that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. That's, you know, you get some recovery, some good food, you're in with good company or something like that. You're like, oh, I I feel okay. You know, (laughs) that's right. Uh, You know, you're still going to remember stuff, especially if a character who has gone down to zero grit will eventually recover most of their grit score, but they will still be marked. And that's why, for example, Dr. Willett won't talk about the stuff anymore or the various people back in the 1700s, the ones who actually had gone down to the catacombs never say anything more about it although the, the one group that was on the riverbank that didn't go down to the catacombs are the ones who were a little bit more willing to talk about it because they didn't suffer any exactly loss. Right. so yeah. if you reach a permanent grip total of zero then you're lost you're an npc you know you, you're going insane but it's a little slower process i think right i think that's more appropriate to sort of the sort of two-fisted action that you know was that you know characterizes dark trails yeah. or maybe say pulp cthulhu yeah. is a little bit more in that realm um and, and you want to keep as much as possible, some interesting, interesting, you know, if they do go crazy or if they do lose it, to at least let the player sort of give it some agency of how that happens as opposed to just say, okay, you're off the board. 
um, at least for that one scene, give them a good scene to go out yeah. on. I think it's pretty important. So any other thoughts on that, Jeff? On on that specifically? Not just the idea of, of you know, I guess sanity or, or grit as mental health hit points or that kind of stuff like that. Do we, do we think that that is still a requirement or is that not necessary now with sort of some of the more sort of um, modern game mechanics or storytelling tools that we have? I mean, I think it's a good tool to have if you're doing Lovecraftian gaming and that's um, a vibe that you're trying to emulate in your game. You know, it's like when you read the fiction and you ask yourself, like, how can I gamify this? You know, because often in Lovecraft stories, there are characters who go mad. And once they go mad, they become kind of unattainable creature. They, 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 they kind of go beyond the point where, like, we're really following them in the narration anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they do essentially kind of go from being the protagonist to being kind of a character we don't have access to. So if you're trying to gamify that, it makes sense to have a sanity loss mechanic. Right. How would if that... you're just playing Dungeons and Dragons, it doesn't make sense to do that necessarily because you are playing heroic characters who are regularly encountering monsters. So sure. seeing a, a, a zombie shambling by isn't going to make you wet yourself and, you know, start crying for days right right and that was always an interesting thing about DD. there was no unified they had like fright spells and stuff like that but there was no unified mechanic as to what caused you to be scared right it was always a fright spell and then but if you were faced with an 11 hit dice you know ancient red dragon your characters would probably run away anyway you didn't need to do a sanity check you'd be like oh that's 11 hit die red dragon i'm scared to hit i'm getting out of here right <laughs> you know? but what uh for example you guys just talked about being you know scared in you know irl by hereditary would you say that that was uh david you losing a grip point right there and you used to be kind of a little disturbed that evening or was that something um that you know or you know three sand points or something like that if or i was something? in that situation uh i'm yeah. pretty sure i would have been paralyzed with fear um but mm-hmm. yeah i would say it was definitely a grit check for me once uh the lights were out and I, I was in the darkness and i was hearing noises you know the typical noises you hear and you start to think, ah, Jesus, what did I do? Why did I watch this movie before bed? <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. It's like I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts. And the other day, a friend of mine, I was working from home that day, and a friend of mine didn't make it into work. And I live very, very close by to this person. And it's like 10.30 a.m. And they ask, like, do you mind stopping by his house and checking on him to see if he's okay? <laughs> So like I walk in, walk into this like empty house that's completely silent at ten thirty in the morning, and I creep upstairs, <laughs> and like my brain is like, maybe he was murdered, maybe the murderer is still here and has heard me walk into the house that is waiting to murder me. Like, <laughs> and then I open up, I go to his bedroom door, and like his door is open, and he's just like laying there, like completely still in the bed, and I'm like, is he dead? And I'm like, like well will and he's like not responding and then finally he wakes up and it's fine but (laughs) and he just slept in and his alarm hadn't gone off but (laughs) but certainly yeah in those moments like that that was certainly a grit check for me uh now i don't really see a a scenario where during that i would have like gone mad and running at the door screaming unless of course i went in there and saw that there was like some extra dimensional being who was feasting upon will well then i probably would have run out the door screaming 
say he maybe had a roommate and uh, they slammed the bathroom door downstairs. Would that have given you a, a you know a shock? And would you have jumped out of your sh- shoes or? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I have I have roommates here, and if I think I'm alone, and then suddenly somebody's in the kitchen with me, like I I definitely have like had moments. Where I'm just like ah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, but you but don't really what, feel like there's a place for instead of necessarily traditional uh, uh, sword and sorcery or fantasy role playing. I mean, no. obviously Conan doesn't get scared necessarily. Yeah, right? it, it it doesn't. It it's it's all about emulating the genre that you're trying to it's, that you're trying to emulate. And um, when you're doing sword and sorcery, Fafford and Grey Mouser, that's not that's not part of what those stories usually. Include include so there's really no reason to include a mechanic for that all right so david actually that brings me to an interesting question and it's specifically about dark trails so you have the weird western game and westerns can encompass everything from you know sort of the comedic uh irish singers in a john ford western to the man with no name in the sergio leone westerns right so um would a sergio would you know the man with no name ever have to make a grit check uh you know, as opposed to, you know, I don't know, Roy Rogers or the sort of more sort of traditional sort of family friendly. I think that um, when you the way the the way the checks work, uh, most classes in Dark Trails are like in DCC and that as you accumulate levels, uh, like your will saves go up. And I think that that kind of in me in a way, I think that's like if you're, you're playing a seasoned character like a Clint Eastwood, you know. Um, and he's been through several of his movies and he's kind of like this total badass. He's obviously going to be less likely to frown upon things like that, but I think there's always a chance. Mm-hmm. And going back to what Jeff said, you know, with fantasy games, you, you don't normally think of a fear check, but what if that character has a, a system of beliefs that don't, that, that don't, I don't know, factor things eldritch horrors and, and things that would completely disassemble his whole belief system. Um, mm-hmm. If you, if you encountered something that in a way or in an essence that kind of takes everything that you've grown up to believe and unravels it and puts doubt in, in who you are and, and who puts you there and where you're going. I do think that there can be an element of fear in those cases. Right. Right. Um, yeah, and so I think sword and sorcery it would be difficult. Although there's a couple of times where Conan says he's not like you know peeing his pants, but he's like, "That's it, I'm out." Right, as I recall. Um, sure, but, but that that that's just role playing. Right, I mean, right, you, don't right. Need, you don't need a mechanic for that. Right, right. I mean, but he's specifically, "Oh, this is Eldritch. This is weird. I'm out." Um, but an example we just had read um, the Two Towers. So Tolkien, the Hobbits clearly are are probably have made a couple of grid checks, like when they're you know, see the trolls or the white in the barrow downs or, you know, the first and all, all the times when the, um, the Nazgul fly overhead, these are all heroic characters, but even they quail, like the, the, the riders of Rohan are, you know, in despair yeah. and, and the various mortal characters, you know, you know, Gandalf, no, Aragorn, no. Uh, so that's maybe the, the, the dividing point, you know, Aragorn is a whatever level ranger and Gandalf's not even mortal, but you know, the halflings are mortal and the riders of Rohan are mortal. Right. So they do have to make, a sanity check, a grit check, a fright check. Yeah, and, and that's kind of, uh, I mean, with Dark Trails, I think that it's, it's ultimately going to fall in the hands of a judge who runs the game. Um, they could they could totally toss the, the mechanic out, or they could they could actually maybe overuse it. To me, I think it's reserved for moments where even that tough guy um, is seeing something that is beyond description and so horrific 
that it's just, it goes against his everything. You know, you're suddenly, you're seeing something that shouldn't exist. And when that's the case, even if you're a total badass, you still might crack, you know, because you realize this thing could disassemble you and probably take you to places that you don't want to go. Mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, into disassemble you into your essential salts yeah. and then put you back together. I I put you back you together wrong. There, it was a good one. Right, 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 right. Put you back there wrong too, which was a major element, right? So that, that these people, these revenants are recreated, and they, a lot of times they don't have the correct information, or they got the wrong grave, or they didn't get all the pieces together, and so it comes back wrong, right? And I think sure. that's pretty cool. And I do love the statement, do not call up what you cannot put down. Oh, that's right. awesome. That needs to be on a bumper sticker. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> really, really, yes, absolutely. So we're, um, we're reaching the end of our episode. So, David, before we wrap up, was there anything regarding the case of Charles Dexter Ward you really wanted to chat about that we didn't get a chance to get um, to? No, I think, I think this is a good show. I think you guys covered a lot. Actually, I think you hit on some things that, you know, I probably didn't pick up on that. Uh, I'm going to go back probably through it and read it again. And I'm probably going to mine this for some nuggets for a dark trails adventure. Right. So. Right. Yeah. And as you were saying, Jeff, it, it, I think it actually gains from a reread because as you say, you can sort of, um, sort of mentally skip the parts that are just not, not, you know, are not adding to the narrative. Right. So you can skip over the des- descriptions of Providence and, and get to that thing that you're getting into, whatever it is, like for focusing on what you want from Dark Trails. Um, I was realizing that there's all these other strings that reach out, which I didn't re- pick up on the first time I read it. And then whatever else that you might have picked up on, Jeff. So, yeah, so absolutely. Go, go, I want now, you to bring your annotated, highlighted version to Gen Con next week because I can steal it from you and go through it. all right sounds good so um so Beatty, if somebody wants to go ahead and find you on social media or read more about dark trails how can Um, they do that the most active social media is on facebook that seems to be where everybody migrated once g plus closed down um there is mayway mealy mayway i don't know how you say it um it's a little less i think frequented and there is a discord channel um, but I would say get in touch by way of Facebook. You can also check out the website. Uh, it's www.darktrailsrpg.com. And sooner than later, you're going to be able to, if you miss the Kickstarter and you want to back the book, um, there will be late pledges. We'll be taking those. I'm just trying to work my way through some of the uh, backer kit snafus um, and get that right. But I'm hoping actually before Gen Con, which guessing this show is going to air after Jim Conf, I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, it will. This yeah. is, this will be airing okay. in September. Well, yeah. by the time this airs, you should be able to um, get in on the Kickstarter if you want too late. And the best way to probably do that would be just to kind of touch base on Facebook by way of the dark trails RPG group. Thank you, David. Uh, you can email us at appendix and book club at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at, at appendix underscore N. We're also on MeWe and Facebook. And Jeff, why don't you say something about our Patreon? Yes, you can go to patreon.com slash appendix and book club and show us your support there. Also, you are able to participate in patron book clubs. The book club that we recorded prior to this particular episode had four people on it. And we had a great conversation with uh, Noah Green, Kurt Hockenberry, um, Michael Harrington, and uh, John Hook. So that was a really fun get-together. If anybody wants to do something like that, all you have to do is go ahead and join our Patreon. 
Uh, our next two episodes will be episode 54 will be on Fletcher Pratt's uh, The Well of the Unicorn. And episode 55 will be on Philip Jose Farmer's A Private Cosmos. And that is our show. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>